You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. Today we have Wade Foster from Zapier. And a lot of people call it Zapier still. I keep correct. By the way, I correct them now all the time. I'm like, it's Zapier, it's Zapier. So I do that for you now. But interestingly enough, Wade's it's been seven years since we had him on the sixth episode of this podcast, which at the time was named Growth Everywhere. Now it's called Leveling Up. And so Zapier, just for everyone, a quick recap from my side, it is a Y Combinator back startup, which lets SaaS users create integrations that push data between hundreds of best in breed web applications without having to write any code or wrangle APIs. So I think that the new phrase now is no code. Are you guys in that movement? Yes, right? Oh, yeah. I think, you know, what, maybe a couple of years ago, like the no code thing sort of it felt like it came out of nowhere a little bit. And yeah, yep. like I think we're commonly cited tool in that ecosystem to helping these folks build whatever they're trying to build. Awesome, man. Well, I mean, update us. I mean, tell us, so seven years ago, and I think we did one interview in between <laughs> as well, but seven years ago, you guys, I think it was, we're, I think we're both 26 years old and now we're in our 30s, right? You have a child now, right? Two, First one. First on the way. First, First on the way, on congrats. The way. All right. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time you guys were maybe a couple million dollars in ARR. And if I'm reading it correctly, you guys are over, over 50 now, but that's, that was last year. So I would love to hear kind of updates from you, how business is going. And then just a, also a little recap for people that haven't heard of you before. So. Yeah. So like you mentioned, Zapier connects all the tools you might use at work where it is over 2000 different apps that you can connect now from all the apps that you've heard of things like Slack and G Suite and Trello and MailChimp and QuickBooks and Salesforce all the way to these up and coming startups that maybe only have a few hundred users so far, but they need to, they got to connect to all the broader ecosystem too. So we're hooking into over 2000 of those. I mean, seven years ago, we were probably maybe 10 ish people in the company, something like that. We're at 300 plus now, still a fully distributed team. We've never had an office ever. You know, company's still profitable. Company still grows a ton. So yeah, it's been a, a lot has changed in seven years. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. I'm sure a ton of people reach out to you, especially with all the craziness going on right now about remote, how you guys make remote work. So I do want to touch upon that in a second and also talk about leadership during, during all this craziness mm -hmm. too. And, and by the way, you guys took money from Y Combinator, but you guys didn't raise any money after that, right? No, we haven't. So, you know, we did the YC and the seed round in 2012. And, you know, we treated that as the last money we might ever get. And so we've been fortunate enough that the growth of the company revenue from customers has funded us all the way to where we are today. That's awesome. Yeah. And just, I remember I was watching the, the interview we did a long time ago. And this is when I had spiky hair. And <laughs> I was talking about all the integrations that we use with Zapier, how it makes our lives easier. And we can't live without it now. So that's great. I mean, we, to your point, we connect all the different apps, all the different tools that we use, and it just makes life easier and doesn't drive your developers crazy because you have to do it. It's a must have, I think, in my business toolkit. So for you guys now, can you walk us through again? Because I think your pricing model has changed a little bit. How do you guys make money exactly? And what other numbers can you share around the business? Sure. Predominantly, it's a freemium business model. So you can sign up, you can use Zapier. Most of all the basic features are available on the free plan. If you want to save attachments from Gmail into Dropbox. You can set up a Zap like that and do that for free. If you want to get an alert for every like Stripe payment you have in, in Slack, you can set up a Zap like that, do that for free. And so mostly the way the pricing model then tears up into paid packages is on a few different dimensions. One, if your task volume, so like using the Stripe to Slack metaphor goes up over a hundred per month. So if you got hundred charges per month, you'd get into a paid plan. 
there's a few features that you might want to that are on the pay plans, like multi-step zaps. So if you're doing like these really long workflows that might tie back to like a very critical business process, those are probably going to be multi-step and that's going to put you on a paid plan. But the paid plans start at 20 bucks a month. So it's pretty reasonable to get into some of these pro plans and then they scale up way beyond that. So as you start to do like really, really some of our bigger customers who are like doing tons and tons of volume are obviously paying quite a bit more. You know, some are like ticking into thousands of, of dollars a month. But most folks, 20 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month is where they're sort of hanging out at doing quite well. And uh, you know, we have over 5 million registered users today. Several hundred thousand of those are on our paid plans. So it's a strong business. Cool. And you said seven years ago, you were maybe 10 employees. You said what, 300-ish now? Yeah, a little over 300 today. Got it. Okay. And when did you guys decide to make the switch to freemium? Because I don't remember it being freemium a long time ago, unless I'm mistaken. It was freemium pretty early on, but it wasn't originally freemium. So for the first year or so of the business, we didn't have a free plan. So I think in 2012, like late 2012 is probably when we said, hey, let's introduce a free plan. And the crux of that was we felt like we were introducing a new kind of tool. It was a type of thing that not many people had been exposed to. They didn't use this type of thing before. It's a little bit, you have to do a little bit to learn, like what's a trigger and an action? How exactly does this stuff work? And we felt like if we gave, created a free plan, it gave folks a chance to play. Gave them a chance to get in there, try something, maybe do something that was kind of silly, like, oh, remind me to take the trash out every night sort of stuff. And gave them a chance just to get the hang of what this thing was. So if there was that basic free plan, that education path could happen. And then folks would start to realize, oh, wow, there actually is some like very obvious and critical things I could be doing to save money, save time, build new types of workflows at work that will actually be worth like significant amounts of money for us over the long haul. Yeah. And just to give people an example, the multi-step zap that you make or the workflow that you can make, here's a practical example for us. We have a private event and people will fill out an application in a Google form. And once they fill out that application, it'll automatically hook in with Twilio. This is a zap that we have. They'll hook in with Twilio and send them a text message saying, hey, thanks for applying. We're reviewing your application right now. Do you have any questions about the event? And then from there, we'll also add them to the CRM. We'll also add them to the spreadsheet as well. Now, normally, if you had to go ask your developer to do that for you, they'd be really annoyed because they want to be building more meaningful stuff. Mm -hmm. So not that this isn't meaningful, but they don't want these little death by paper cuts things. So this is where you can come in as a regular person and solve it. So yeah, I mean, from the get go, that's what we were looking at. We had clients that were coming out to us before we created Zapier, basically saying, can you build these types of things? Because we don't know how. And for the three of us, we were like, we don't really want to build these types of integrations. So this is not the fun type of engineering work that most engineers are seeking out. So of course, we decided let's create a business around it. Like, let's do this all the time. But I think that goes to show that excitement doesn't always equate to value. Like there's a lot of valuable things that you can do that are fairly routine, honestly. Totally. And so I guess for you, okay, last seven years, we're talking about leadership. We're talking about growing a remote team. I guess, what are some of the key lessons you've learned? And I want to dive in on some of these. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to grow from 10 to 300 plus people, you have to figure out culture along the way. Like you can't, at least in my experience, it's very difficult to get big groups of folks to orient around a mission. If you don't have some shared values. If you don't have some shared way of working, otherwise you just spend too much time like debating core principles. And so for us, 
one of the most valuable things we did early on was set up some of those core values and made that part of our hiring process, made that part of our performance review process so that we could make sure we had folks coming into the org and developing skills that aligned with how we wanted the business to work. So for example, we have default to action as one of our core values. We felt like this was really important, especially in a remote organization where you don't have a coworker sitting right next to you. You don't have a boss or a mentor sitting right next to you who can say, hey, you need some help. You want to like, can I help you get going? Instead, we needed folks who are going to be self-starters, independently motivated, curious about the problems that we faced that would be able to just show up every morning and decide, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fix this thing. So that was like a critical value for us. Alongside that, we said, hey, well, if we want people to take action, we need to equip them with information. So default to transparency also became a critical value for us. We needed folks who were good writers, good communicators, who are going to share systems and processes, who are going to share their work more broadly, so that when someone showed up and was like, hey, I've uncovered an interesting problem, they had all the information that I would have to make a good decision. And so those two values became a critical way of helping propel us forward inside of a distributed org. So those are the types of things when I'm talking about like developing a strong culture, developing strong values has really helped us scale, I think, better than if we did not have those things. Right. And how do you, because when you look at Amazon, for example, and we talked about this, you look at Amazon, it's a culture of writing memos. Uh, You look at Mm -hmm. Basecamp, it's a culture of writing. In fact, they will, that's a big piece of how they evaluate you. So I guess, how do you evaluate how good a person is at writing during the hiring process? So you get a lot of informal writing as part of the interview process, you know, emails that they send, the application form that we have them fill out. We often have a test of some sort, like a skills test and a small portion that will be dedicated to writing. So all of these things some of them that are labeled like officially part of the job things and then others that are actually not officially part of the job interview we're still paying attention to that are they communicating well are they you know even basic things like do they get time zones right do they like do certain things where they're just paying attention to these little communication details are hints to us that this is a good communicator specifically in written form got it Yeah, I think some people listening to this might be like, oh, we're talking about culture right now. Like, that's not practical. I need the tactics. But at the end of the day, (laughs) talking to a bunch of people, the top CEOs in the world, the number one thing they obsess over is culture. It's like people, but how do you get people right? It's culture. Yeah. And I think I had that same viewpoint seven years ago when we're talking, we're coming out of YC. And I remember all these founders coming to the dinners and saying, culture, culture, hiring, scaling. And I remember having that same reaction, like, this isn't relevant to me. It's just three founders. We're just going to go build this stuff on our own. Like, I want to understand this very specific marketing trick or this specific product management thing. Like, that's what I cared about. But as we got to, honestly, not much further beyond that, maybe 20 people, 30 people, you really quickly realize that there's a lot of leverage in building systems that allow groups of people to operate very effectively together. And if you don't do that well, you've got large groups of people who are dysfunctional. And I think we've all been a part of those types of groups. I mean, if you think even just back to any sort of group project you did at school, you know that most of those group products were fairly dysfunctional. There was one person that did all their work and everybody else coasted on that person. But in a company, you can't have it that way. Like you need everyone to be pulling your weight and you have to have strong values to make that work. Or at least that in my experience, that's how we've made it work. Got it. So if someone's wondering right now, it's like, okay, I'm kind of coming around to culture. So how practically, how did you get better? Was it being in founder groups? Was it reading anything specifically? Like what are some practical takeaways for 
building a great culture? Yeah, I think for us, the critical questions we asked right at around 10 people, honestly, was what makes somebody successful inside of our organization? What characteristics and skill traits and competencies are going to allow them to thrive? So me and our, at the time, our head of support just sat down and started coming up with a list of things. And we're like, okay, you know, this doer mindset, you know, these strong writing traits, this intellectual honesty, ability to take feedback well. Like we sort of, you know, had a massive list of these types of things. And then from there, the rest of the company got in and helped edit it down and said like, oh, I agree with these things or disagree with these things. And then we adapted that list to something that was a little more punchier, a little more, you know, the default to action, default to transfer. It just sticks in your mind a little bit better. So you apply the like copywriting tricks that, you know, these little phrases stand out. But the most important tactical piece was making it part of the hiring process and making it part of performance reviews. So coming up with specific interview questions that test on these skill sets and understanding what a good answer and a great answer looks like. And then also having those things part of the performance review. And so that makes these values, that makes these principles flow through the DNA of your company. And at a certain point, it becomes so strong that you as the leader are now being held equally accountable for those values. So there's been times in our history as Zapier's values have become stronger where people will call me out and say, wait, you're not doing the values in the way that you say we should be doing. And there's been times where people are right. And so I'm like, okay, I have to like be espousing these too. And so that's, I think when you know you're really starting to get it right is when people are encouraging everyone, including you, to be held to a high bar on these standards. And so by making it part of the hiring process, by making it part of performance reviews, by encouraging it in other sort of informal ways, it slowly and steadily becomes this like hidden, it's almost like the DNA that sort of sits under the surface of the company. It's hard to see from the outside, but when you get inside, you really do feel what those things do for you. Totally agree. And I love that. I'm actually looking at your glass door right now. It's weird. It says next to your name, hiring surge. Are you guys like hiring like crazy right now? Is that what a hiring surge is? Uh, it must be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Here's the thing. You guys have 28 reviews from people and it's a 4.7, which means people love working there. So I guess my question would be around that. How does it look when it comes to employee retention? Because when it comes to remote, with a typical company, it might be like, oh, you know, if you lose 10% each year, you know, like we're doing a good job. So what does it look like mm -hmm. for you guys? I don't think we've ever had a year where we've lost more than 10% of our, our folks. Our retention rates have probably hovered in between like 90 to 95%. We've had some periods where it's been higher than 95%. And a big part of that is just simply being remote it helps with retention rates. You know, you have folks that are in military families or, you know, a spouse that's in medicine that moves around a lot. And so you retain all those folks because they're not looking for a new job. And, and also you just attract some of those folks too. So it becomes a kind of job that people want to stick around with. So you do benefit from those types types of things. However, I've talked to other remote companies who don't have the same retention rates as us. And you start to realize there are specific cultural elements that are critical too. just being remote doesn't necessarily make you be a company that people want to work for. You have to get other things right too, to help those retention rate numbers stay high. And even still, like you're never going to have 100% and probably shouldn't shoot for 100%, honestly, like some small amount of turnover is, is a little bit healthy. It shows that you're keeping a high bar. It shows that you're evolving. Um, yep. But, you know, I think if you're, you're hanging in that 90 to 95% range, like that's probably a really good spot to be at. Great. 
So talking about the crisis that we're in right now. So we're recording this as of it's May 21st. Holy crap of 2020. Um, time <laughs> flies. So by the way, your hair looks really good. Uh, my hair is like so long right now. But anyway, <laughs> leadership during crisis. So what have you learned during you know, the last couple months? You know, I think one of the things that we benefited from as the pandemic set in, as work from home set in, as schools got shut down, childcare shut down, as unemployment rates are spiking, the economy's doing poorly. The biggest factor for us wasn't actually what we did the moment the pandemic set in. What I really realized was all the stuff we did leading up to it is what's allowed us to thrive during it. And so the choice to build a strong remote culture has helped us immensely. But other things have helped us a lot too. Being a profitable company has helped us a ton. Being smart with how we use the money that we make, building up a good balance sheet has made us a strong company. Doing things like building a self-serve product that has low price points, that makes it easy for folks to adopt, that has helped us out a lot too. And so when the pandemic set in, it was, hey, our work, the way we work is already set up to be well, like to do well in a situation like this. We have the financials to sort of endure any sort of volatility that might come about because of this. And then it was just figuring out how do we take care of our customers and how do we take care of our team? We knew that the business was going to be fine. So it it really allowed us to go into this mode of let's take care of the people we care about the most. And so for our team, it was leaning into transparency. We already have this value of around default to transparency, but you know, all around them, things are sort of in turmoil and crumbling. And we were like, how can we demonstrate that, we have a good, strong position. And so transparency was a big part of it. We've always been transparent about our financials, but we doubled down. Like I have a daily update on how the cash in the bank is trending, how churn is looking, how growth is looking. And our CFO has done multiple deep dives every week to correlate that with the external environment. And so that gives everybody a sense of calm around this where they're like, okay, I at least understand where Zapier stands in all of this. Now we're lucky, we actually stand in a really good position. So that helps too. But just simply being like, here's what you can expect and being very truthful and honest about it. We didn't hide the challenges we had. We didn't try and make it look better or worse than the situation was. It was just, this is where we're at and this is what we're dealing with. So that has helped a lot. And then really leaning in to how can we help our most fragile customers. So we set up a customer relief fund. So for anyone who was most heavily hit by these things, we waived their bills for 90 days. For customers that were doing creative things to help with the relief efforts, we provided free accounts for those folks. So we really tried to say, we're in a lucky position. What can we do to just generally be helpful? And everything else that was not that kind of stuff, like we had some marketing and promotional plans that were a little bit I mean, they worked in a pre-COVID world. They didn't really work in a post-COVID world. So we just scrapped all that stuff pretty much on a dime and said, hey, look, they were great ideas, but they just don't fly right now. It's just going to look tone deaf. And we just pivoted all that stuff to saying, how can we help our customers best? And so for us, that has worked really well. The team feels supported. The team feels like we have a strong direction. Our customers are getting the help that they need. And in turn, I think it's helping us grow. Real question for you around that. So I think obviously as human, you empathize with what's going on around the world right now. 
But as an entrepreneur right now, are you genuinely excited about the opportunity or are you scared? You know, I think there's a little bit of both. Uncertainty breeds a lot of creativity and it breeds a lot of opportunity. And so there's a part of you that's like sort of interested in that where you're like, hey, I wonder what we could do. I wonder what we could take advantage of that in sort of a more stable time. That opportunity isn't there. And so there's a part of you that, of course, is looking for those areas where you can sort of insert yourself to be helpful, to generate business, to do better than the other guy, right? And then there's the other part of you, the human part that's just saying, this is clearly just a bad time for everyone. And I wouldn't really wish it on anyone. You look at the unemployment numbers and you're like, that's obviously not good. You look at the sickness numbers, the death tolls, you look at all this stuff and you'd say, you know what? I would trade all that stuff back to not have had the coronavirus. Like I would rather that have not happened, right. um, but here we are. And so you look at it and you say, what can I do? Got to make the most of it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Most entrepreneurs I talk to, there's the ones that are super excited about the business opportunity. And yes, on the human side, it's like, yes, this sucks. Would rather not have it. And then there's the people that just kind of crumble under pressure. So um, just <laughs> yeah. want to, that's kind of the takeaway for everyone. It's just to take advantage of what you can. So we've got a couple more minutes left. God, I wish we can do this for way longer. I wish I wasn't booked back to back. But um, <laughs> I do want to talk about employee incentives real quick, because when I look at Nathan Berry, he's got not only just equity, but he has profit sharing as well. So originally he was just doing profit sharing. He's like, we're not going to do equity. And then he actually rolls out equity too. So how do you guys mm -hmm. think about employee incentives? We've done a profit sharing program for quite some time and it is really pretty powerful. I think it's, if you're generating cash, it's a great way to share in the success of the company. And so if Zapier does well, you do well too. And on the years, and we pay out every six months. And so the, the periods where we've done exceptionally well, it's, meant like a pretty meaningful extra chunk of cash for folks. And when things are a little tougher, it's, hey, it's not quite as much, but I think everyone gets it. It's like, hey, this is a shared endeavor here. And it also has helped level up people's business acumen just a little bit. I wouldn't say it's a silver bullet by any means. Like some folks are just never going to be like super interested in the finances of the business. It's kind of a boring topic. I get it. But it does get people thinking about it. So they look at it and they say, hey, is this extra expense really working? Is it really that useful for ourselves? And so it does help keep some of just that waste out of the business. And it just keeps people focused on what really will generate value for ourselves. And so I think from that perspective, it really does help build alignment too. What, what does the pool look like? Is it like 10% of profits for everyone, 20%? Well, so it's shifted actually quite a bit over time. So it used to be a pure profit sharing play. It's actually now more of a revenue sharing play, but with like a profit lever in there as well. So one of the things we realized is pure profit is not actually the best mechanism. That's the best incentive because if you want to no. grow and you don't want profits necessarily, it's like people are like, what the hell? Yeah. And so now we actually have like a lever system where we have percent of salary based on certain revenue benchmarks. So if we hit 5% growth, 10% growth, 15% growth, right? Like your percent payout goes up, but there is a corresponding profit bar that we have to hit as well. So it's like, if this one is here and this one is here, we pay out at this one, that kind of thing. So it encourages like the right focus on, we, we got to hit our revenue numbers. We got to hit our profit numbers. If we hit both, that pays out at these levers. And got so it. That has been better. Um, there still is imperfections. I mean, any incentive model, there's imperfections in it. You can pick apart all the flaws. 
So you're just trying with these incentive programs to figure out what best aligns to your values and what best aligns to your growth trajectory and trying to optimize for that set of upside. There is always going to be a thing that you have to figure out, like this is the way that it gets abused or this is the way that it sort of falls apart. I like how you have a pairing metric. So it's not just profits, it's revenue as Mm -hmm. well. That way it aligns things more with where you guys are trying to go. So I like that. I think people should think about a pairing metric. So the other thing I wanted to ask, ever since I first started podcast, when I had no listeners, you were getting on podcasts, you were speaking, and you're still speaking, you're still getting on podcasts right now. So I'm just wondering for you, from a marketing perspective, what has that done for you? Why do you keep doing it? It's really hard to attribute podcasts to like any sort of key metric inside the company. It's just a very difficult medium to do. But you hear a lot of qualitative feedback. So I hear from customers all the time saying like, oh, I heard you on this podcast or I heard you on this. And it's tons of different podcasts, honestly. Like there's obviously, I've been on some big podcasts at this point in time and you hear like, oh, I saw you on this show or that show. And I've been on some tiny podcasts and people are like, oh, I listened to this random one and I'll be like, oh, great, cool, that's awesome. So I think the thing that's different about podcasts compared to a lot of marketing channels is that the audience is so engaged. These are subscribers. Like these are people that listen to you every week and they're coming back and they want to hear what you have to say. They want to hear what your guests have to say. And so when I'm able to get on and just talk about the things I've learned, share the experience I have, and occasionally share a little bit of what the product does, this is going to be a 30-minute advertisement, basically, for me and for Zapier and all that sort of stuff. And that is really hard to pay for that kind of exposure. It's just, you don't really get that in most other mediums. And so to me, that's why I've committed so much time to it. It definitely pays off for that. The other place I've seen it pay off a ton is in recruiting. Like, you go talk to everyone that's joined the company and I mean, shoot, over half at least will say, oh, I listened to Wade on a podcast or I heard Wade talk about it and I got interested in the company based on that. So it's a huge help for recruiting too. That's so true. I actually, I've always kind of brushed that aside when people would mention it or I'd hear about it. And that's actually really true. It's good for recruiting too. Yeah, some yeah. things you can't measure and we're two marketing guys. So there you have it. Um, <laughs> all right, two rapid fire questions and then we are off. So favorite business book. I forgot what you recommended seven years ago. So whatever you got. Ah, favorite business book. Well, I'll give you one I read more recently. I picked up this book called The Outsiders, which was oh. Unconventional CEOs. So they dig into like a bunch of CEOs from basically 1950s to early 2000s and folks that stock price had sort of like far exceeded their peers. And they tried to dig into like what made those companies different. A lot of them are not companies that you or I would normally talk about. And they sort of just digged into the way those companies operate and saw the things that made them different, things that were exceptional about them. And so it was just a fun dive into sort of counterculture company building. And, um, I don't know. I've, you know, Zapier's sort of built, been built in a counterculture way in some, some aspects. And so I just, I felt it resonated a lot with me. Love it. And then last question is favorite business tool that's not called Zapier. <laughs> favorite business tool not called Zapier. So, I mean, obviously I use like Slack and Zoom and stuff a lot, but I'm going to go with something a little more off the beaten path a bit. I've been using this tool. So if you're a tab hoarder, I'm a tab hoarder. I've been using this Chrome extension called Bracona a lot. And what it does is it lets you create different sets of tabs. And so you can swap between sets of tabs very, very fast. It's really, really quick. 
And so, you know, I have a set of tabs that are for like all my interviews for the day. I have a set of tabs for Google Docs that I have to review. I have a set of tabs that for all my one-on-one notes. And so like if I, you know, my one-on-one day comes up, I do all my one-on-ones on Monday, I just flip over to that set of tabs and they're already open for me. So it just helps keep me like a smidge more organized. Yeah. And I've been using it for probably about a year now. I really do like it. Oh, Ricona? Workona, like work on a. Yeah. Work on a. You yeah. know what's crazy here? I'm going to give you a suggestion before we leave. Can you hear me clapping right now at all? No. Yeah. So if you ever have background noise, get this thing. It's called crisp.ai. Crisp.ai. The fact that I keep yep. mentioning them right now is mm-hmm. I'm like a walking advertisement for them, but it's so amazing to me. Yeah. Anyway, Wade, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? You know, I'm on Twitter at Wade Foster. You can hit me up there. Uh, my email address, Wade at Zapier. I'm happy to try and respond there. I do my best to read everything. I don't always get to the responses, but I will certainly see it if you email in. All right, Wade, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, have a great one, Eric. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.